0: is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often, so stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase, that's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Welcome back, Prokaptan. I hope you're well. Today, I think we can take a break from Wikiosis and feature some listener questions. These questions come from supporters of this podcast, and if you'd like to submit questions to be answered on future episodes of this show, which won't happen with any regular occurrence, but maybe once a month, please consider becoming a patron yourself by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. Speaking of patrons, here are a few thank yous to our new patrons. Kale Branigan, Reed Hammam, Rowan Mentley-Peters, which is such a great name, Rowan, both of those names, in fact. Rowan Atkinson is the first person I think of, and Mentley-Peters I have never in my life seen as a last name, so good on you for having a great name. And lastly, Rudy Bonfini. Rudy, what are you doing in there? Rudy Bonfini, if you don't know who he is, although you should if you listen to the last episode, in addition to developing the Actual Stoicism app that Kai Whiting, Rudy and myself are releasing in February, which you can find out more about at ActualStoicism.com, seems to be such a mensch that he's also supporting the podcast. So thanks, Rudy. And thanks to anyone else who has become a patron of this show recently or at any time in the past, even if you've had to leave for affordability reasons or any other reason for that matter. Thanks for your support while it lasted, and I hope you'll come back one day. Today, as I said, we're going to feature some listener questions, but before we dive into the post box, as it were, it's time for our customary couple of ads. See you on the other side. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks, and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. All right, let's dive right in. The first question comes from listener Modern Rust, or at least that's his name in the Discord community. Modern Rust asks How do we prioritize between our roles? For example, I have a job, family, friends, and many other places where I have an important role to play. How do I prioritize my roles in the most Stoic way? Surprisingly, there is a single answer to this, and it is not. It depends on the context. Here the answer is the only answer that exists, which seems to be rare in Stoicism, and I'm thankful that I get to begin today's episode with some concrete advice. At least I think that's what I'm doing. The answer is, no roles can contradict any of your other roles, or they are roles you are not supposed to be taking on. Now, that might not seem to answer the question, so I'm going to elaborate, don't worry. At this point, we know the circles of concern inside and out. We know that the self is at the center, So we cannot prioritize anything beyond the self to a greater degree. What are our roles as an individual? Let's start there. They are to live according to our nature, because this is living according to nature, capital N. The funny thing about this is that other than understanding this, the only way to live according to our nature, and to nature with a capital N, is to appropriately turn our attention to the other circles. So the key to prioritizing ourselves and living according to our nature lays at least partially, if not mostly, almost wholly, in how we care for things that are not ourselves. And I think that's a great way to start. So what's the next circle? It's family. And whatever we care for in this circle cannot work against our responsibility to ourselves, which is to care appropriately. So when a family member wants you to help them, for example, steal something, you say no. But when a family member asks you to help them overcome a drug addiction, for example, you say yes. Why? Partially because to help them steal forces you to act inappropriately in concerns to the well-being of the next circles, friends and community, those are those circles, as stealing might help your brother, though that's arguable, but it certainly doesn't help your community or the friends you might choose to steal from. Whereas helping your brother to overcome addiction by giving him your care and attention and concern doesn't just not conflict with your role as an individual human being, it fully actualizes it since your brother's sobriety in this example is a benefit to him, his friends, his family, and his community. So you don't prioritize family for everything or in every way, but you prioritize family in the same way you prioritize yourself. That is to say, in ways which, and at times when, to do so also benefits those further circles. Let's extrapolate by considering a much larger circle. Can you prioritize your nation? Well, let's see how one might do that. The military might be the first thing you think of. So can I pick up a gun and shoot other people? You might say, no, never. But Leonidas Constantikos would be quick to remind you of his just war theory, and he would be right to do so. Sometimes to kill an individual is in service to the community, is in service to the family, is in service to the self. But these times are very, very rare. One cannot simply say, I do what my nation asks of me, because to do so is to outsource the responsibility of concern and care to your nation's representatives it's to outsource your thinking. There can be no doubt that some Nazi soldiers, for example, felt that it was their duty to be Nazis because it was what the leadership of Germany at the time said was necessary for them to do to be real Germans. But these individuals became part of something they otherwise probably would not have, had they only thought for themselves and examined their roles and whether or not the extermination of the Jewish people was in harmony with their roles as family members, community members, individuals, and universal citizens of the world. So what do we do when our job as a soldier says we have to shoot another person or drop a bomb on an entire country, as America did at the end of the Second World War? How do we navigate such insane circumstances? And, it's worthy of note here that it should be enough to make anyone want to weep that we live in a world where these sorts of circumstances exist and these kinds of considerations have to happen at all. And that so many people get lost in groupthink instead of standing firm with their own justified positions on things. North Korea and South Korea, as an example, live on the brink of a terrible reality. North Korea might decide to attack South Korea at any moment. And what if they did? How would a South Korean soldier feel about killing a North Korean soldier if they truly felt that the actions expressed by that North Korean soldier might very well be the result of decades of brainwashing? Would that South Korean soldier, or any of us, really want to hurt a person, let alone kill a person, for something that they felt really wasn't their fault? But we would have to, wouldn't we? Because not to would be to abandon our service to the broader cosmopolis and to abandon our roles to our community, our friends and family, and therefore ourselves. So killing in such a case would be in alignment with our own nature to care for and concern ourselves appropriately. And let me just take a moment to say that we're really out on the fringe right now, right? Considering the original question. But this is the sort of thing that modern Rust might find himself contemplating all the time. It's something many people might. Life gets messy. It gets complicated. It gets difficult, fast, sometimes out of nowhere. And we frequently find ourselves along for a ride that perhaps we don't even remember making any singular decision to board in the first place. And yet here we are, having to decide whether to shoot someone. So can a Stoic shoot someone dead? The answer is only yes, when doing so is a benefit to the further circles. Can a Stoic become a hermit? Only when to do so would be a benefit to their family. Can a Stoic refuse to have friends? Only when to do so would be a benefit to the community. Can a Stoic refuse to play a role in their community to help make it better? Only if that would positively impact the Cosmopolis, and so on. Everything we do in one circle must be a boon to the next and the previous, or it's not in alignment with our rational nature. And if it's not a boon to the previous and next circles, then it must needs conflict with our responsibilities to concern ourselves appropriately to those other circles, or rather for those other circles. That's how you decide, modern rust. And if you go through this exercise and find a few conflicts in your own life, it is up to you, the individual, to be brave enough to take a stand, not for the sake of the outcome, but for the sake of doing what is appropriate and doing that for its own sake because to do what is appropriate reflects the knowledge of what it means to live well. To do what is appropriate is the path to virtue. Next question comes from RK, and RK asks, My question is more on the elaboration of the idea that you cannot possess one pillar of virtue without also possessing the other three pillars. I've heard you mention that concept a few times, but mainly in passing, so I would love a long-form explanation. And before continuing, a couple of things. First, R.K. is talking about the cardinal virtues, which are courage, wisdom, justice, and temperance, although people say them in different orders sometimes. I think I say them in a different order every time I say them. And also, I think it's probably a good time to mention that I've recently decided not to refer to myself as a philosopher of Stoicism anymore because I think it communicates an ambition that I never really had, or if I did ever have it, I shouldn't have had it. Friends like William Stevens think it's fine for me to call myself that because I spend a lot of time writing in Stoicism, and that makes me a philosopher, for example. But I think it also communicates that I think of myself as an actual philosopher. And again, other people might think because of the nature of my work, I technically am. But whether that's technically right Since I do have a love of knowledge and feel as though I'm in constant pursuit of it, I really don't want to be known as a philosopher. I want to be known as a podcaster who helps people through musings and interpretations of Stoicism. And I will further preface my answer by saying that I'm not William Stevens or Christopher Gill or any other formal academic. And I think, although not to dwell on the past here, that it was a mistake to ever really go down that path. Maybe it was an identity crisis, I don't know. But I'm pointing it out ahead of this answer because this is a question that deserves an academic's response. Because in order for my answer to be correct, it has to accurately reflect what the ancient Stoics thought 2,300 years ago, which it probably won't. Because my aim with this podcast isn't to communicate, you know, Zenonian Stoicism, the very original form. It is to make Stoicism practically useful to regular people, people like me and probably like you. I think I lost sight of that in the second year of this podcast, but I better know and understand my own roles now, and I felt it necessary to say this before providing my attempt at a correct answer to R.K.'s question, and here is that attempt. The argument, in my estimation, in concerns to your question, R.K., seems to be that an individual cannot be brave without also being wise enough to know what brave means in every context, nor if they aren't temperate enough To know when bravery is appropriate to express, nor can they execute bravery the right way if they don't know what is just. So a person cannot be truly brave ever unless that person is a sage. That is to say that they've obtained the knowledge of how to live excellently, that they've obtained virtue, which seems wholly impractical, but I actually find this kind of comforting rather than vexing because it means no one is going to ever be perfect because they can't be. And I find this comforting because it gives us unlimited room for improvement, or near unlimited with the limit being sagehood, which is more like a motivating concept and not a real thing, at least not according to me. Zeno may well have thought that it was truly attainable, sagehood that is, but if he did, he would have thought it was damn near impossibly attainable. And he would also say that he never reached it, nor did anyone he knew. And this whole idea of needing to have all these virtues at once to have any single one of them is called the unity of virtue. And I can never remember if it's Socrates or Plato or Aristotle who first came up with it, but I'm thinking it was Socrates. And it was later advanced by other thinkers and adopted by the Stoics. Again, I don't know how practical this is, because it might lead someone to believe that there's no point in trying to be brave ever if you don't already know you're a sage. But on the other hand, I think it can be pretty practical if we look at Stoicism as a practice instead of this thing you have to be perfect at before you can really say you're a Stoic. This idea that we must be an entire thing before we can be any part of that thing doesn't really sit well with me. A puzzle isn't a completed puzzle until it's complete, and I suppose that that's true. It's an analogy I've used before. But to suggest we're not still a puzzle of a kind before we're complete, if we're the puzzle, would be silly. We can't be a sage until we're a sage, but we can still be sage-esque as we're working on becoming a sage. And I know we can't be brave until we're a sage, but we can be brave-esque. If anything, I think we ought to look at this unity of virtue thing as a way of keeping ourselves honest. I think I'm acting brave, but I can't get it perfect unless I'm a sage. But being what I think is brave now is at least honest, and maybe if I keep striving towards that honesty, I could habituate proper bravery and everything else. I think our imperfect attempts to practice these four cardinal virtues is key to our slowly habituating the behaviors that lead us to truly embodying them. In this way, then, virtue isn't a knowledge you learn so much as it's a knowledge you accrue in bits towards. Just like when you're putting together a puzzle, you accrue pieces in the right place, and that directs you towards having a complete puzzle. And that's how you get a complete puzzle. You make progress through various imperfect states until you've accrued all the pieces and have a complete puzzle. I hope that's helpful, RK. We're going to take a quick break here to hear from a couple of sponsors. When we come back, we'll take our last question, and then I will bid thee farewell. Stay with me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... The next question comes from Battle Baby. Battle Baby is a moderator in our Discord community. Glad to see you here, Battle Baby. Her question is, I've always wondered about the difference between having what I guess I would call stoic reserve where you avoid trouble when you can, but also are allowed to stick up for yourself and those in your circles of concern. It seems like a hazy area between putting up with, say, mistreatment from an employer, as one example, and protesting that treatment. How does a stoic not be a doormat is, I guess, what I'm asking. I think this is perhaps one of the strongest criticisms of Stoicism in contemporary times, and it existing in the first place is proof positive as to why it's so important that Stoicism, that is actual Stoicism, gets a brighter light shown on it than the dude bro interpretations that grace most of our, or many of our, social media timelines. Usually in the form of (laughs) strong-looking, AI-generated muscle men with out-of-context quotes about lone wolves sheep, lions, and how emotions are for weak beta men, whatever the hell those are. Let's take your example, Battle Baby, an employer is mistreating you. Let's say that that mistreatment is in the form of sexual harassment. And let's also say that it's not just that this has happened once, so you're not really sure if it's maybe just a misunderstanding or something. And it wasn't because he was drunk at the company Christmas party. So you feel bad, maybe, about holding him accountable for a behavior that he only expressed while heavily intoxicated. This, in this example, is repeat sexual harassment. We don't need to define what form it takes. That's not necessary. We just need to all buy into it being sexual harassment, factually, without room for misinterpretation. That is how we're going to start this thought experiment. As a Stoic, you would first want to think about the word mistreat. You know, from a strictly stoic perspective, mistreatment is an indifferent that doesn't impact your ability to attain the only good, virtue, the knowledge of how to live excellently. You want to get your head into the right space before proceeding, and remembering this little bit is important. This guy isn't hurting you from the strictly stoic perspective. You're not thinking about taking action on this harassment because you think it prevents you from being virtuous. You're thinking about taking action because you know that the way you deal with this creep's behavior is a reflection of your character, what you've learned as a Stoic Prokoptan, and because it directly relates to your circles of concern and oikiosis in general. This isn't about legislative justice or punishment. This isn't about revenge or giving the creep his due. This is about what not acting would communicate about us as Stoics, what our non-action would mean for others, and what our duty is in this situation. To act with the cardinal virtues, which we mentioned earlier in this episode, we've got to remove the passions invoked by thinking about this harassment like a personal thing, like a vendetta. This is hard to do. And as someone who was themselves sexually assaulted in the past as a teenager and who absolutely had no idea how to deal with it then and took a number of years to figure it out, I know not taking something like this personally borders on a kind of saintliness that nobody could realistically have. But this is only hypothetical prescription in a thought experiment. I know reality isn't a thought experiment, but I'm being asked for advice here. So we're creating a fictitious world where people can actually not take this kind of thing personally. So let's say you've done everything you can to remove your personal feelings from any choice you'd make to do something about the creep. In no way, shape, or form does Stoicism ask that you simply deal with this harassment because it's an indifferent that doesn't matter. It's an indifferent that can't make you vicious, that's true, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Someone being murdered doesn't cause you to be vicious or to become virtuous, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't care if someone is about to get murdered and you can do something to prevent it. Something being an indifferent and something not mattering are two completely different things. So again, the personal aspect has been removed as much as is possible, and now you're weighing things up. You're trying to figure out what to do. Stoicism is about character, because your character is a reflection of your choices, and your choices are a reflection of your knowledge. And knowledge of how to live well is virtue. So virtue shines through your character. If you have virtue, your character is going to communicate it. If you choose to do nothing about this menacing creep, what are you choosing? Well, you might be choosing to keep your job. Perhaps you're afraid if you speak up, you'll lose your job. But would someone with a good character prioritize their job over speaking up against a serial sexual harasser and miss out on the opportunity potentially to protect other people? In most cases, we would certainly hope not, lest this creep's reign of creepiness never see an end. Being brave isn't easy. Neither is knowing when to be brave. And there could be contexts where being brave here comes in a different form than confrontation. Perhaps your boss is the only other person at the company. You are a company of two. You might also be a single parent. You cannot lose this job. Is it brave to lose your job, lose the ability to support your children just to stand up to the creep? Or is it brave to look for other work and endure the creep until there's an out that doesn't compromise the health and safety of your kids. Or maybe it's brave to quit. Report them to the police and show your children what it means to hold your personal integrity over everything else. I'm not telling you that any of these decisions or any of these courses of action are the right way to proceed. The point I'm trying to make is that there is no one way to be brave in this scenario. And you might think it's easy, as someone perhaps not going through this, to say, I'd quit. I wouldn't want to let my kids see someone get away with that kind of behavior, no matter what the cost to our family personally. But it might be a very different reality for someone else, and neither individual would be wrong in how they chose to move forward. They would have chose what they felt was best. Stoicism doesn't teach us to simply endure everything that's difficult and brush it off as not mattering. Stoicism does try to condition us such that we can endure hardships when they crop up in our lives, but Stoicism isn't meant to make you a cold and unfeeling human, only a capable, resilient human who is resilient because they understand something like, no matter how bad it gets, no one can take from me my ability to choose to live well, because that's all inside me and all within my control. But that's quite a different thing than saying nothing matters, because the former suggests we have the will to endure the worst externals if they happen, while the latter suggests we live our lives as if everything should be treated as a threat to our serenity. So, the way you don't be a Stoic doormat is you first understand that being a doormat is antithetical to Stoicism in the first place, because to be a doormat is to make no choices, which is a form of cowardice or fearfulness or apathy. And anyone who is concerned with living excellently could never choose these things because they'd know better. Second, you understand that your choices have to consider so many things other than yourself. Your choices aren't really about you they're about everything else. You stand up to a bully, for example, because if you don't, what good is that to the community? You stand up to a bully because if you don't, what good is that to the others who are bullied by that same bully? You stand up to a creep making creepy advances in the workplace because if you don't, he'll do it to others. Your standing up might not solve the problem, and you might be a casualty of the creep's malice. But if you everyone made the same choice to stand up, soon the creep would meet with a reality where he couldn't continue being a creep because the personal cost would be too high. You can't make everyone else stand up, but you can choose to. And ultimately, it's not about the outcomes of your choice. It's about what your choice says about your commitment to your pursuit of virtue. Even if standing up against Hitler gets you shot dead in the street right there and then, your death isn't what determines whether your decision was the decision of a sage. Your understanding of how your decision was the most logical decision determines whether your decision was the decision of a sage or someone approaching sagehood. For others, keeping their mouths shut and planning a secret uprising three years later that would find Hitler dead in a bunker might be what's appropriate. The point is that you're not a doormat if you're removing the personal emotion from things and then thinking through what's appropriate given all your other roles and the other circles and the circles of concern. You're not a doormat if you're working to determine what's appropriate and then when you figure it out. If you're committing yourself to following through on that appropriate choice. So kicking your creep boss in the earmuffs for the little kids who are listening, kicking your creep boss in the dick might be the right choice. Reporting him to HR might be the right choice too. Remaining silent could also be the right choice depending on your situation. Or quitting silently, starting a nonprofit to fight harassment in the workplace and making it harder for sexual harassers to survive in office settings might also be the right choice. All of those choices would require bravery, a concept of what was just, temperance in the carrying out of the actions that the decision necessitated, or that the choice necessitated, and wisdom to tie it all together, or something like that. If you're making logical choices and you are prioritizing not your own emotional passions, but the circles in your circles of concern, rather the individuals in your circles of concern, then you are not being a doormat, even if you're remaining silent, because your choice to be silent might be the most appropriate choice for you. The important thing here, Battle Baby, is that you're using logic and reason to arrive at the choice you make and then you're following through with whatever actions that decision or choice necessitates. That's how you avoid being a doormat. You actively engage your hegemonicon, your rational faculty, in making your choices. That means you're not a doormat. Even if, from the outside looking in, people might think you're being a doormat, you know you're not being a doormat. Because you know that the choice you're making is the rational, correct choice the choice that most allows you to live according to your nature and live with the stoic circles of concern in mind. I don't know how useful this answer is, and I may have gone off the rails a little bit, but I hope it was at least a little helpful battle, baby. And thanks for your question. And those are all the questions this week. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. If you're not yet a supporter of this podcast, please consider becoming one for just $5 a month. You will get access to our members-only Discord community. You will also gain access to an ad-free version of the podcast and some other things that happen behind the scenes and at random. Like, for example, I have invited Will Johncock into the Discord community to have a private Q&A with patrons of the show which is fun for the patrons if they can make it, and probably also fun for Will Johncock because he loves talking about this stuff with people who are interested in hearing about it and talking about it as well. So things like that. You get things like that if you become a patron of this show, and it's just five bucks a month. You can become one by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members and signing up, and I hope you will. That's it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care.